Welcome back. This is the Liberty on Fire podcast. I'm your host, Libertarian Tony, and I'm going to be joined by Conservative Joey. So happy that you're here joining us. If this is your first time, then thank you for being here. If, on the other hand, you are a dedicated and regular listener, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate that you come and listen to each and every show. So, Joey, we have some things we're going to talk about today for our audience. And I want to start out our segment by talking about International Women's Day, which was on March 8th, so it just passed. Anyway, I really think International Women's Day is about me. And now, why would I say something like that? It obviously sounds sexist. So I I support three women in my family. I support my wife and my two little girls. Now, my wife, on the surface, it would appear as if she was supportive of women or maybe even more supportive of women than I am. However, she supports two little girls. And since you can't count yourself, she tops out at supporting only two women and then me. But here's the rub. And here's why math is really important. You have to subtract me from one of the girls. So the way the math adds up, I support three women. She only actually supports one. And therefore, I'm more supportive of women than she is. And that's why International Women's Day should really be about me. How is that for a segue into the diversity, race, and gender issue we're going to talk about today? I, I didn't really understand anything you just said. Am I allowed to say that? Yes, you are. All right, good. The math, I, I don't get where you subtracted yourself from the equation, but um, maybe it's because I wasn't too good at math. Well, I mean, you know, government education. When we first started this podcast, remember I think you said on episode one, how you doing this week, Joey? And I said, well, I haven't been called a sexist, racist, or homophobe this week, so it was a pretty good week. Uh, right? That was our first episode? That's exactly right. Well, I think it, it took about three weeks, but I was finally called sexist. No surprise. Yeah, about three weeks, I think it's been. And uh, the, the reason being is because I was just reading an article on, and I'm a, I'm a big Bucks fan, so I'm part of a lot of big Bucks um, fan pages and stuff on Facebook and online, different different clubs for the Bucks. And uh, one of the articles was talking about at the NFL Combine, a reporter said that our new head coach, Bruce Arians, he wants to have a full-time coaching role designated for a, a female because of diversity, and he feels diversity is really important. And to me, it really made, made no sense why you, would, why you would do that. I don't understand the need and the constant obsession with diversity for the sake of diversity. I'm not really sure what for. And I thought it was a stupid idea to and I thought it was discriminatory itself, fundamentally, to have a coaching vacancy open, but you're discriminating on gender, saying only a woman can can apply for that position, no men. And it really just doesn't make sense in the context of football and coaching football. I mean, the people who get these jobs in the NFL, for instance, one of our coaches in the Bucks, uh, linebacker coach, he was a high school football coach for years, won multiple state championships, Moved on to college, accumulated a 65 and five record in Division One football in a small school in Division One. Then moved on to a better Division One school. Then got his way into the NFL as a position coach. So the people who are applying for NFL positions are people with extremely big resumes and tons of experience, lots of credentials, have shown success, and there really isn't a pool of women that have had the same sort of resume and qualifications for football. 
in the NFL. So you, just to fast track a woman into that role um, be, for the sake of diversity, and it, the, I just think these kind of things are stupid and it's stuff we see all the time. It's just always big virtue signaling, and it's just it gets on my nerves when I see it happen. So I start to get like sort of resentful when I see it more than I really should be. It just it just keeps it just bothers me. It just constantly comes up this kind of crap. But I got called sexist for having that position. Yeah, I I can see why you would get called sexist. I don't agree with it. It's um I think obviously I'm going to agree with you on this part. It, you know, diversity just for the sake of diversity I think is retarded and it's also however you want to call it, you know, racist or sexist or you know towards whoever you want to exclude. So, um you know, it's like a reversed sexism or reverse racism or uh, that kind of just dovetails into the whole entire talk about diversity in general. And it seems like the progressives really hyper-concentrate on diversity when it comes to your skin color, when it comes to your sexual preferences, and um, like what sex you are, right? Uh, so th there's no shortage of politicians out there constantly talking about race and gender. I don't completely understand why I have theories about it. I guess one of my theories would be is that they just are constantly looking for people they want to turn into like the, a victimhood type group and tell them that they're being victimized. And if they can convince them of this, then they can try to rescue them as their, their savior, you know, and they secure their votes at the same time by doing that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I just don't understand why it's so prevalent in in football nowadays i mean this brings me back to earlier in the year i remember i think i talked to you about this when the cleveland browns were searching for a head coach there was a report by adam schefter that they were looking into condoleezza rice which again i thought was like absurd you know a head football coach and it's you know i'm sure there's females out there that know a decent amount about football um, but, you know, it's it's not a secret that there's none that have resumes and credentials and a history. First off, there's really no girls playing football. So you have to skip the whole, you know, playing part as far as your experience goes. And there's not a it's not like their NCAA is filled with coaches that are females. I mean, so I don't know. I guess if you could get a head coaching job by bombing foreign countries, I mean, Hillary Clinton and Obama could be up for a coaching position soon. Yeah. Well, if they want to get into it, I mean, maybe they should start where like everyone else. I mean, like try out to be, uh, you know, on the coaching staff of a high school team or middle school team. And if you do well, then you move up. I mean, that's how it's not like men were handed these opportunities for some because of some sort of bias. They they started out in low levels and worked their ass off in it for years and years and years and years. I mean, it, there there wasn't too many black people as head coach back in the day, but now there's a ton. Our, the Bucks themselves are filled with black coaches. It's because they got into coaching and they, they you know, from like everyone else at the beginning and worked their way up and shown results. And, and then in, at the end of the day, everyone, as far as business goes and wanting the best, you know, for your business, everyone's colorblind. They want the best candidate usually. So, you know, no one's racist when it comes to hiring a black coach because if the black coach is the best for the job, he gets the job. There's no thought about it. Yeah, obviously it should all be merit-based. Yeah, it should be. That's my. That was my point online. Like, it, it shouldn't be discriminatory based on gender, race, religion, or anything. It should just all be based on merit, and that's how you're gonna get the best results. But if you want to 
to force a female into the coach, like our Bucks guy said. I mean, it's probably a low-ranking coaching job, but still, um, people, you know, to get these jobs in the NFL, they have to have a lot of experience. But if you're going to fast-track a woman in there uh, who I'm sh- sure has very little experience compared to everyone else, then your results are most likely not going to be as good. No, yeah, I think these teams are going to do themselves a major disservice trying to look the part of being inclusive but not kind of promoting merit-based, I guess, coaching on their on their squads. It's, it's going to lead – it's going to make the teams worse. I mean, it could. You could open the door to that. Like, I'm sure – I'm go, I go probably a little overboard because it was just a – it's probably some small little position and it's just one. But I just still think the principle of it was ridiculous. No one was willing to vocal, you know, say that with me. Everyone pretty much just said I'm being sexist or whatever. So I have a discussion or a diatribe on this whole diversity thing uh, that I could go into. I kind of want to start the rest of this kind of conversation with a quote. You okay with that? Yep. So let me read the quote, and at the end I'll let you guess who it was. The worst enemy that the Negro have is the white man, that runs around here drooling at the mouth, professing to love Negroes and calling himself a liberal. And it is following these white liberals that has perpetuated problems that Negroes have. If the Negro wasn't taken, tricked, or deceived by the white liberal, then Negroes would get together and solve our own problems. I only cite these things to show you that in America, the history of the white liberal has been nothing but a series of trickery designed to make Negroes think that the white liberal was going to solve our problems. Our problems will never be solved by the white man. Now, who do you think said that? Um, is this a pretty prominent figure? Like, I know who this guy is? Yes. I mean, it sounded like, it sounded like something um, Malcolm X would say, but I didn't think about the liberal part. Dude. You got you got you totally got it right. That's awesome. Okay, so that was Malcolm X, and then about a hundred years earlier, uh, Frederick Douglass, the famous uh, abolitionist, said the same thing, uh, or very similar. He wrote a, an essay in 1861 or 62, one of those, and it was titled "What Shall Be Done with the Slaves?" Oh, sorry, "What Shall Be Done with the Slaves if Emancipated?" And I'm not going to read the entire essay. Uh, anybody can just Google that part, but I have just a little snippet that sounds very similar. So he, here, now from the essay, he's saying to the answer the question, our answer is, do nothing with them, mind your business, and let them mind theirs. Your doing with them is their greatest misfortune. They have been undone by your doings, and all they now ask is just to let them alone. They suffer by ever interference and succeed best by being let alone. So obviously, Frederick Douglass and Malcolm X aren't the only ones who warned about this white man's interference, but the politicians, for the most part, don't listen. They always feel that you know they need to do something and latch on to various groups of people and convince them that they're a victim, and then just to promise to save them for you know from some sort of uh, oppression. And uh, the most devastating problems that, I guess, black people face today have absolutely nothing to do with our history of slavery and discrimination. 
So, you know, chief among them is the, the breakdown of the black family. And I'm sure you've heard this before, that about 75% of blacks are born to single and often young mothers. Uh, in some cities and neighborhoods, the, what is it, the out-of-wedlock percentage is like over 80%. Mm-hmm. And this, this is entirely new uh, for blacks. Cause in, Since the 1960s, really, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it looks like I, some of the stats I have. So in 1938, only 11% of black children were born to unwed mothers. Which was lower than white children, white people, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And in, as late as 1950, female-headed households only made up about 18% of the black population. And, and today it's in the high 70s. So welfare has encouraged young women to have children out of wedlock. And the, the social stigma that was once maybe uns- associated with wealth or welfare, sorry, with unwed pregnancy is, is basically gone. Well, you you almost said you almost said the social stigma dealing with welfare, um, and that would have been true as well. That's something that I touched on last podcast, if you remember. Absolutely, no, that was, was very well said. Uh, and progressives, you know, sometimes say that, you know, who needs a man? Do it yourself. Girl power. Well, you know, the high crime rates in, in many black communities impose like huge personal costs, and have turned like once thriving communities into like economic wastelands. Now, I, if you think about it, the KKK couldn't really have sabotaged, you know, uh, chances for for blacks to do well any better than, you know, some of our government programs and our government schools. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, and I think the the one of the worst problems um, with like you know bad youth and youth and crime and and all that kind of stuff and the crime in inner city areas is the major metropolitan areas is because the the uh, single parent rate is that high i think two parent households uh changes a lot uh, it has a major major effect compared to one and yeah that's the problem it, it, among uh, black people the rate was in the low uh, you said 11 percent and then might have been around 18 to 20 later on but then skyrocketed in the 1960s and the it's it's mainly in my opinion because of the the creation of the welfare state that happened and they're subsidizing single uh, mothers with with the way the welfare is created right now they they entice having a kid and not being married some of the the amount of money that you can get on when you have like two or you know an extra kid but no no father in the picture is a, a pretty significant amount a month in your, in your state california i think it's like 700 extra dollars a month for just one kid as long as you're not you know married and then it goes up and that's just one program that's the tamp i forget i think it's called temporary assistance for needy families and that's just one program there's like three or four of them that all have to do is having um a child but not having a, a father in the life so the government is subsidizing just like i said in last podcast subsidizing poor behavior and yeah, I think it's a huge problem. I had a conversation about this not too long ago with someone in my work, and they thought the uh, we they both we both agreed that single parent, you know, families are a big problem, especially in the black community and metropolitan areas. But they uh, they thought that it was because the criminal justice system racist you know racistly targets black people uh, for drugs, and that the fathers are just all in jail because our our system's racist. That was their thinking. Yeah, see, I, I have a couple issues with that. One is that I, I do think 
blacks are, are targeted probably more uh, than they should be. But I also, however, believe that drugs should all be legal. So there would be no reason to target them to, uh, you know, raid their house or look to see if they're carrying drugs. There's just no need for that sort of confrontation between the police and people. If people want to do drugs, let them do drugs. You know, it doesn't affect you. I don't, um, I, I think if we stopped putting people in cages for, for doing and selling drugs, the jails would just it would clear out. You know, you'd have so many, you know, nonviolent offenders uh, back out on the streets, comp- you know, being able to contribute to work. You know, I, I wish we could run like a simulation and see if all that was true, because you know it sounds like it might be, but I hate to just be um, advocating legalized drugs everywhere and just I don't, I don't know what would happen and what it would look like. I wish I could see if it would be all positive or or all negative. But another thing about that. You know, maybe they are getting targeted a little more, but they're also committing uh, a lot more disproportionately uh, of the, these kind of crimes. So the the trend lines, you know, end up forcing cops into maybe targeting them more than they should. And uh, one thing though about that, and why I don't think drugs are related to, you know, especially a a racist, you know, criminal justice system targeting black people, is the reason for uh, single parent families being so high is because of all of all the people locked up in the state penitentiary penitentiary systems in America and all the states um, it's like 16 or 17 percent are there for for drug related crimes most of its violent crimes and I think of that 16 17 a large amount of it like three-fourths of those are for drug trafficking you know and selling not for drug use it's only like five percent for drug use and of that 5%, a lot of them are dr- the drug trafficking pled down. So, I mean, there's no way statistically even makes up for the giant growth it's since the 1960s in the single-parent family. You know, so it's just, there's no way to me that that's the reason why. It's definitely the, the subsidizing of poor behavior because of the welfare. A couple of things here. So, yes, the when the war on poverty started and that took off, uh, welfare took off, that really did more to hurt people than help, in my opinion. And more so, the a lot, a lot of poor people and a lot in the black community, because they, uh, and, and we discussed this already, they obviously said that, well, if you have a father in the household, you, you don't need our money, so you're not going to get anything. They, they cut them off. And that's why you have so many out-of-wedlock births. Uh, that's part of it. And then it would go back to your some of your drug comments. We actually are running experiments right now as we speak, right? We're legalizing marijuana in many, I guess, more states than anybody would have thought possible recently. And so I think that's going to continue to gain ground, and we can see what happens with that, right? You're going to get probably less violent crimes being committed for that one drug going forward. You're going to still probably have... Uh, violence related to cocaine and heroin and the other drugs that are kept illegal. And we, we actually have another historical example in our own country. Look at prohibition. So when, you, when prohibition was passed, I don't know how many years ago, it was probably like 1918 or something around then. Anyway, so you had the, you know, making alcohol illegal, the crime rate and death rate around alcohol just shot through the roof. And the only way you could really get it was through the mafia. 
and other smaller like organized uh, crime i guess groups that would you know supply some of the speakeasies with alcohol and and then the country couldn't take it the, the violence was 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 too much and so they got rid of it and then the crime went away because it was legal again so i i would use the current example with marijuana and i would use the prohibition example as uh, experiments on why legalizing all drugs is going to cut down on the people being arrested for it. It's going to cut down on the violent and the nonviolent crime. It's going to happen maybe not completely in our lifetimes. I think it's going to get better and better with marijuana. Uh, I don't know if it'll move into uh, cocaine and heroin yet, but uh, I think the amount of money we're spending on, I guess, the, the drug war, we could be spending on something else or give it back to the people. But if you're going to spend it on something else, you know, spend it on rehab centers and education or something. Legalize the drugs, educate the people why it's, you know, it's not so good to show up at your job high, you know, show up stoned. I think that'll become much less socially acceptable to, you know, show up to work on drugs uh, and that it'll, it'll move its way out of the system. Uh, that's how I feel about that. Will it become more socially unacceptable, you think? I don't know. I mean, are we in the crazy progressive area where maybe, you know, like, just look at the how the millennials think of life today. Everything is, you know, sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Owed, owed to them in a way. Maybe uh, drug use, you know, won't be as frowned upon. Well, I know, I think it will, and, and here's why. It's because the people who who own the jobs, right? The entrepreneurs and the, the businesses out there are, are going to crack down on it. The only way is if it will stick or it has like a real problem will be if government gets involved, right? Because let's say you have a, a business, any kind of business, you make pizzas or something, and then your drivers show up stoned and then you get into car accidents. Well, then obviously you're going to fire that person, right? I think these kind of things are going to work themselves out. They'll weed themselves out of the picture, and the employees or you know taking jobs are going to be like, yeah, I can't do this anymore if I want to earn a stable income. So, if government gets involved and protects people that have kind of drug problems, like they you know protect union workers and things like that, well then uh, I can see that being a problem. But I th- any normal business. Uh, that needs people to function at like a high level when they come to work, they're going to weed it out naturally. Is it legal in California, your state right now? Yes, it just, I forget when, but it is legal now. See, here's the thing, Tony. I I was in San Diego, okay? And it smelled like shit over there because of all the weed smell in the air. Well, what do you have to say about that? Don't go to San Diego. I don't think it's right to put people in jail for, you know, doing drugs or smoking. I mean, you, you can have a similar argument for people smoking cigarettes in bars. You know, it's, I think that should be up to the, whoever owns the restaurant or the bar, if you're going to allow smoking in there, you know, not some government kind of mandate. And uh, if there's a bunch of bars that have, allow smoking and they'll, always end up being some bars that don't allow smoking. And so a lot of the non-smokers will end up going there. And if smoking becomes less and less popular and people, you know, dislike it for the health effects, then they are going to frequent the non-smoking institutions more. Those places are going to 
uh, do better in business. The smoking places might be able to stay in business. They might not. So, yeah, the, the fact that you smelled it on the street is not an issue to me. Don't go or hold your nose. But it's better than throwing somebody in jail. All right, so I do want to get back into the discrimination thing because we got sidetracked there on drugs. So, so much of like our reasoning about race is really uh, like emotional and faulty. Like they use words such as like discrimination. If you think about it, like the, some of the words we use to describe it are discrimination, prejudice, racial, uh, racial preferences, and racism. Yeah, a lot of people use these words interchangeably as if they were like the same behavior. But let's look at the word, like if you look at discrimination, uh, most of the time this word's used in a negative way, but uh, discrimination can be defined as like an act of choice. It's, it's essentially a form of expression of certain preferences, uh, very akin to like the freedom of speech or freedom of association. And, and these rights are all supposed to be protected by the Constitution. You you have a right to discriminate, which is basically to make one choice over another. And our entire lives are spent choosing to do or not to do thousands of things. And, you know, choosing requires non-choosing. When you choose to listen to this podcast, you discriminate against other uses of your time. When you choose to, like a spouse... So you discriminated against other people. So it's stuck at, like, when I chose my wife, you know, I discriminated against other women. Some of it was racial. You know, namely, let's say, I discriminated against black women, Asian women, fat women, and women with, like, a criminal background. I didn't offer every woman an equal opportunity, and they didn't offer me an equal opportunity. So uh, also, it's known that like high IQ and high income people tend to marry other high IQ and high income people. Aren't they, I guess, discriminated against low IQ and low low income people? So I, I imagine that most people would be horrified uh, by uh, like a government or a dictator mandating that like a, a high IQ person is forced to marry a low IQ person. And no one really wants any sort of, you know, meddling into you know such a personal affair such as marriage and you think about gay marriage right you know nobody wants to be told who they're allowed to love and who they're allowed to marry so we discriminate all the time and in my opinion it's just called making a choice and do you remember i guess the story of the is a evangelical christian baker in colorado he was threatened with jail for refusing to bake a cake i guess for a gay wedding yeah, of course. And this probably happens more often than it should. You have, I guess, Christian Americans or very religious uh, Americans being hounded for their refusal to like uh, cater same-sex stuff, uh, parties and weddings. Now, for those who like support those attacks, we might ask them whether they would seek the same sort of prosecution if, like, the owner of a Jewish deli was refused uh, or, you know, refused to provide services for like a neo-Nazi group or a black catering company was, uh, should they be forced to cater like a KKK affair? You know, should the uh, NAACP be forced to open its membership to like white racist skinheads? Um, Should the Congressional Black Caucus be forced to allow white members? 
Well, wh- back when you said this may happen more, or this happens maybe more than it should, were you referring to the Christian baker itself or the people attacking them? The attacks uh, on the people that have like strong religious opinions and for one reason or another decide they don't want to you know, bake the cake for the gay wedding. And I think it happened in Oregon too, didn't it? The actual baking or yeah, see the, the, the original one they found, you know, they, these people had been going searching for this kind of, this kind of result from a, a Christian bakery. And this was like, you know, most of them would accept the cake and do it. It wasn't like it was something every Christian wouldn't baker wouldn't do. Um, but they finally found one and they can make a story out of it. Right. Right. So I guess to, to kind of keep the diversity stuff going here, I mean, how many times have we heard in the news that like women are 50% of the population, but only 5% of like Fortune 500 CEOs? Now, if one, I guess, believes that uh, people should be kind of represented socioeconomically according to the numbers in the population, well, then uh, you, you're going to get statistical disparities. And people are going to ask for government to kind of do something about it. But before you do, like jump to conclusions about what the, these disparities mean, it, you got to ask whether, is this an injustice or not? Or is this just something with the, the numbers, something in the statistics that could mean something else? Well, this is one of the reasons I'm not liberal, because I found that then everybody that I know who's very liberal on the Democratic side, when they see a, a statistical um, difference and disparity, like you said, they automatically jump to the conclusion is that there's something unjust and the system is unjust and the system needs to be fixed because for some reason this uh, there should be statistical equity here. And they never look, it doesn't seem to me that they ever look for logical reasons and rationales to really explain the statistical difference because there almost every single time is a real answer, a straightforward, logical, and a, a sensical answer on why there's a there's a disparity here. No, that's right. And, and I've got a couple of funny ones for you. So uh, here, let me read this. Men in Australia are nine times more likely to get killed by a shark. All right. Does, now, does that mean that sharks are sexist? And men are struck by lightning six times uh, as often as women are. So again, it's like whoever's in charge of lightning must be sexist too, right? Uh, well, speaking of criminal justice too, being you know racially targeting black guys, like some people would think. I mean, what about the fact that there's a lot more men in jail than there are women? Are the cops, you know, um, gender biased? Are they are they uh, discriminating? Are they you know what's going on there? Yeah, no, I mean, there's all obvious explanations for a lot of these things, but people don't want to um, they either. I guess are ignorant of what the what the statistics mean, or they're unpurposely holding back the information in order to kind of dupe people into their side. And I, I think, unfortunately, uh, politicians are in that latter group. They, I think most of the politicians really know what the numbers mean, and just refuse to talk about it in order to. You know, perpetuate. No, yeah. Any any time that they get a chance to to say that someone is a victim, it's an opportunity for them to get votes because they can say you're a victim. It's not your problem. It's not your fault. But this is unjust. And vote for us because we're gonna install a system that fixes it. I mean, it's just a big voting opportunity. 
So they love it. Politicians, especially on the left, love all these statistical dispar- dis- you know, disparities because they're going to come and they see an opportunity. Yeah, I've got some more for you. This is so I found another one. So Jews are less than 3% of the U.S. population and about, I think, 0.2% of the world's population. But between 1901 and 2010, Jews were 35% of American and 22% of, I guess, worldwide uh, Nobel Prize winners. Cool, huh? Uh, So here, here's some more good ones. Uh, Blacks are about 13% of the population, but over 80% of professional basketball players and over 65% of professional football players. And they're, they're always among the highest, played, uh, highest paid players in both sports. So, you know, by stark contrast, you know, blacks are probably only around 2% of professional ice hockey players. So, you know, basketball, football, and ice hockey represent, you know, these huge racial disparities. And it comes, it comes nowhere near what in America looks like. Right. And there are hardly any Asians in the NBA, you know, and I think that's that's obviously because of racism. Here, I'm going to keep going. I have some more good ones. So in uh, Major League Baseball, 75% of hitters with the most career home runs are black. Eight times more bases are stolen by black players than whites. And in uh, here's some more. In basketball, 50 of the 59 MVP awards have been won by black players. Now, should government or like professional like sports leagues try to fix these disparities? You know, I guess you could have black players run around the bases with like a cord around their feet. And, you know, if you're a black basketball player, you can, you can tape one arm behind their back to try to level the playing field. Yeah, when it comes to these kind of things, everyone realizes the, the truth in in it all and the black athletes being real big and strong and and it's it's pretty obvious that they're going to make better basketball players when there's a six foot seven guy who's lean muscle and can jump you know but uh when it's applied there when there's a situation of a disparity in statistics and something else then um they don't want to look behind the curtains to see what the truth is or peel back that onion and, and go a few layers deep to see what the answer really is yeah and if we loop this back to to women now, w- women are like significantly overrepresented in education and nursing, and you hardly ever see women going into like the fishing or mining industry. So, I guess if government really tried to equalize, I, I guess things like this, they'd be forcing people into professions that they didn't want to go into. I mean, it's is crazy. So, uh, I mean, courts, uh, like bureaucrats, and all these intellectual elites. They, they have uh, consistently concluded that like these gross disparities are indicative of a pattern of, and, and practice of discrimination. But I mean, given all the differences among people, I mean, this is pure nonsense. And this big one is the gender pay gap. That's the, the big political talk, talking point as far as the uh, disparity in statistics between men and women. And that one's super easy to, to debunk. I mean, there, there really is no... Pay, uh, d- d- gap between pay and men and women when all the um, variables are equal experience years worked and yeah experience for the job that they have a hand their uh, college degree when all things are equal the pay actually statistically um, for whatever reason ended up favoring women just by a little bit 
But the reason why they come up with the 76 on the dollar thing is because they're taking a broad like stroke of statistics and, and viewing just the pay, not looking at the amount of years worked, what types of jobs they are, the fact that more men are going into science and, and engineering than, than women, and more women are going into something that's a generally a little lower paying, like education, all that kind of thing. Is the fact that a woman takes a, a few years off to uh, mother a child and have you know go through pregnancy and and be a mother while the man provides for that you know time period, and then maybe they're content with staying where they are in the corporate ladder rather than putting in 60 hours a week during that time where a man could go and climb up, all these type of things, what they're going into, the work. Uh, the That pay gap thing is really easy to debunk. And I always say to people like who think that for some reason it's the evil capitalists that are being sexist and don't want to pay women or take advantage of the fact that they could pay them 60, 70 cents on a dollar. I say, that first of all, that's ridiculous. And it would probably be a, a great thing for women if, if that was the case. Because if a businessman out there is hiring like, you know, a bunch of software developers or accountants and says, hmm, I can I can pay this one um, 40,000, um, but you know, or the guy 60,000, then who's who's going to get the job? It's going to be the one that's getting paid 40. The entire firm would be filled with females. It'd be like the most feminist business that you'd see out there, It'd be entirely employed by females if that was the case. But obviously that's not what the case is and it's not happening. Um, but I'd hardly, th I wouldn't, I wouldn't even think of it as a bad thing if I'm coming out of college looking for a job and I have a real big advantage as far as, you know, um, my competitive labor goes, I can get a job easy, no problem. But no, that's not the case. Right. Yeah. No, if that pay gap truly existed, it, there'd be so many more men out of work and, and so many more women working. So I, I guess I want to kind of finish off with just a little bit more on, on liberty, because this is, after all, the Liberty on Fire podcast. So liberty requires bravery. To truly support free speech, one has to accept that some people are going to say things that others find deeply offensive. Uh, this is similar for freedom of association. You know, one has to accept that some people will associate in ways that other people are going to find offensive. Um, and this, this includes the, being able to associate freely based on race, sex, and religion. So I'm afraid that many, uh, I guess, of my fellow Americans out there are just too hostile to the principle of liberty. And most people want liberty for themselves, but where I think we both differ is that we just, we want liberty, not just for us, but we want liberty for everyone. Well, I hope everybody liked that joke in the beginning about me being more supportive of women than my wife is. Not too sure she's going to agree with that, but we'll see after she listens to the podcast. Well, that will do it for today. Thank you all for listening to the Liberty on Fire podcast. Please do me two favors. Number one is to share the show. Remember that we want to continue to advance the message of individual liberty, and sharing and growing the show is one of the best ways to do that. The second favor is to subscribe Rate and review the show on iTunes. A five-star rating is much appreciated. Also, please check out our website, libertyonfire.org. Thank you very much. And until next time, let's keep those fires of liberty burning bright. <laughs>